The moment the United States war in Iraq started going wrong, comparisons with the Vietnam War inevitably rose, with quagmire becoming a key buzzword. Yet is the current war in Iraq at all comparable to Vietnam? And if so, how? If not, in what ways is our current predicament different? And most importantly, what are we to do about it? Here to talk about his new book, Is Iraq Another Vietnam, is author Kale Balduck. And uh, Kale, good morning. Welcome to KUCI. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for, uh, A, for being here, and B, for writing uh, this important book that I think has kind of been a topic on everyone's mind, but I'm not sure that people really wanted to you know, explore whether we are involved in, uh, in another Vietnam. Uh, how, let's start by, by getting some background. Tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you came to, to, to write this book, to ask this question. Um, well, as a kid growing up in the 60s and 70s, I was aware that there was a war going on. Uh, you know, people talked about it. I saw images on the TV news, images in Life magazine, uh, because back then you, you had a lot better journalism and a lot more uh, uh, just you know, images of how things were over there coming back uh, as, as compared to today when it's so controlled by the military and the government. But anyway, I just uh, that was kind of the, the war I grew up with. There were uh, a number of, uh, of young men that went to Vietnam from my small Midwestern town of a thousand people and, um, and some who came back with some, uh, some psychological difficulties over that and so just from that grounding it I just kind of held an interest in it and kept going back to it uh, whenever topics would arise in the culture and, and I'd read a book here or there and um, until eventually I'd read quite a few books and uh, and then seen various, you know, documentaries and whatnot. So that was kind of just how it all germinated. And at what point during the current war in Iraq did you decide I got to write something? I mean, because it's one thing to to ruminate and to <clears throat> compare. Uh, it's another thing to get the motivation to you know actually do the research and uh, you know and, and and write the book. And I must say, I really enjoy the you know the footnotes. I think it's a, a well well-documented book. Thanks. I uh, appreciate that. And I appreciate you having read the book uh, closely. I, you know, it's the whole the mess we're in now. Uh, so many of us were against it from the, the beginning and thinking this was, I just had a very bad feeling about it. This was a mistake. Uh, lies were being told and all. And, you know, the sort of angle that I sort of, obviously with this book, focused on eventually last summer was after hearing a number of comparisons with Vietnam and then uh, that rekindling my interest in reading a few more things on Vietnam and uh, starting to look into uh, some books on Iraq and the first Gulf War and uh, the whole history leading up to this one, uh, I just decided that as much as I knew about Vietnam and as little as I was hearing about Vietnam in any, you know, good qualitative way, I wanted to go ahead and just delve in into it myself and uh, answer this question in uh, as objective a manner as I could while still, you know, putting forth my judgments about 
various things in, in both situations. So uh, there wasn't really any perfect uh, linchpin, I think, that made me do it. I just I started out gradually um, poking around here and there and eventually got to writing things, and it just sort of grew and, and, and grew and uh, kind of wrote itself over a pretty intense several months. Well, rather than answer the question, let's go from the beginning and take a look at the evidence. And I want to remind listeners, they're in tune to KUCI in Irvine, 88.9 FM, KUCI.org on the Internet. This is Justice or Just Us. We're speaking with Cale Baldock. Am I pronouncing your name correctly? Baldock. Baldock. Uh, looking at his new book, Is Iraq Another Vietnam? And let's begin uh, talking about Vietnam. For some of the younger listeners who may not have you know, the kind of information that they do with uh, the, the war in Iraq. W- explain the, the pretext for, for Vietnam. Sure, and I, I would have to say that an- another reason that uh, prompted me to write it is that the public in general, not just the younger people, just the public who even lived through the war and fought in the war, um, have a, a basic um, ignorance of the whole thing. Well, and and if I could interject, I I think I, when I, when we spoke on the phone, one of the things that I found so, so interesting about the book, I mean, I've been following uh, the war in Iraq very, very closely and not only through this radio show, but as you said, you know, through activism and paying attention to independent media. And it's so easy to read your book and uncover one of these quotes that you thought, Gosh, I totally forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're just we're bombarded with with so much nonsense. Whether it's it's news media or even you know what what passes for news media, you know, the new Hollywood celebrity and the new American Idol and the new whatever. So, and the new so-called journalism. I it, mean, this whole uh, right-wing attack machine that's out there has really transformed this culture. It, it, exactly. So your your point is is well taken that it's not only. For Vietnam, but the current war. But that being said, what what's what are some of the pretexts leading up to uh, the war in Vietnam? Well, I think it's important to understand um, that Vietnam went through a thousand-year history of uh, repelling invaders, um, mainly the Chinese, at various times, and then uh, uh, the French uh, in, invaded and colonized it in the 19th century. The Japanese uh, were there during World War II, and so uh, Vietnam has this uh, long uh, history and cultural mythology of repelling invaders. I mean, they were the only culture to have repelled uh, the the Mongol hordes, and they did it twice. So that's a, a very tenacious culture and proud, and the Americans they just saw as this, the the next step towards um, fighting invaders and independent and gaining independence. Um, some of the key things about U.S. involvement are that um, during the 50s when the French refused to leave Vietnam and uh, provoked the Vietnamese into a war of liberation, the Americans uh, were getting heavily into the Cold War, and this was seen as simply um, a, a war against communism. At least that's the way the French um, got the U.S. so involved with saying that if we don't stop these um, these Reds here, they just they'll spread everywhere, and so the United States was paying for about 80 percent of France's war costs in the 50s, 
And even when France decided we've had enough and we want to get out, the United States says, no, you got to stay in there and at least have one more major battle. And that was the, the Battle of Dien Bien Phu, which was an utter disaster for the French, and they had to get out. Well, the, uh, the sides came together at, um, in Geneva and agreed to uh, the Geneva Peace Accords to get the French out. And the sector of society that was fighting on the side of the, the French colonials and the uh, side, side that was supporting uh, Ho Chi Minh's forces, mostly, uh, it wasn't just North Vietnam, the, the country wasn't even partitioned then, but they were concentrated in the north and coming out of there. Um, those sides still had tensions and, and could have carried on in a civil war, but these accords tried to um, make it so that we'll, we'll have a, a, a temporary division of the country in the middle. The, those who want to go to the north and live under the communist regime do that. Those who want to go to the south and live under the what was the uh, United States puppet regime uh, run by an autocrat down there, you could do that. Well, uh, then there were supposed to be elections to take place in 1956, and whoever won the elections, that's whose regime it would be, uh, the country would be unified under. Uh, what happened was that it became obvious that Ho Chi Minh in the north was going to win in a landslide. He would even have won in the south uh, with 80% of the vote. And uh, so the puppet president, uh, Mr. Jim, in the south, uh, the U.S. guy, he called off the elections. He went around the country, especially on the countryside, uh, and trying to wipe out all the, the remnants of Ho Chi Minh's old army, which had not been militarily active uh, per the uh, Geneva Accords. They were they were allowed to politicize things and just you know be politically active, but not engage in any kind of military activity. But it. And Ho Chi Minh even restrained them from fighting back for a few years, but in the end they couldn't uh, stand just being uh, massacred the way they were under the, the U.S.-supported president in the South. And so they had to fight back, and that's how the what then grew into the Vietnam War that we know really, uh, that's where it had its, its roots. And uh, Americans sent advisors to prop up the GM regime. Uh, they actually, there was more uh, actually military involvement of American personnel over there than was admitted. And so that was kind of the slow road into what uh, we really got into after the uh, Gulf of Tonkin incident and resolution. Which I want to get into in a second, but I think, you know, to, to introduce the Gulf of Tonkin re resolution, I think there needs to be just a, a little uh, little something said you you mentioned of course you know the 1950s and the the you know the cold war and the the communism scare and this idea that if we don't get involved you know communism is going to spread I, I don't know if that's what was referred to as uh the domino you know theory right. of, of communism spreading but you know was the public really that concerned about vietnam and, and about communism in vietnam spreading elsewhere or did the, uh, the United States government, I guess in this case, you know, the Johnson administration, need some catalyst to, to spread fear uh, within the American public? 
Well, it, it didn't. Once the McCarthy era uh, had come about and you really got people frightened in any, in any case, just like today, Americans are very poorly informed about um, a lot of the things, and especially foreign affairs. So it was pretty easy just to do what we wanted in Vietnam during the 50s with practically no one in the United States paying attention until, uh, you know, I think mostly in the, the Kennedy administration uh, and their activities over there may, that heated things up and got people a little more aware. But even then, it wasn't, Americans didn't know much about it until even during the war, actually. But well, then what is, for, for our listeners, uh, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution? We hear a lot about that today, actually, which is, uh, you know, one of the comparisons that we often hear with, with Iraq. So um, if you could, you know, explain, if, if we had a presence in Vietnam up until the Gulf of Tonkin uh, resolution, in what way was that a turning point? Well, we had a pretty low-level presence. I mean, there were some maybe 15,000 quote-unquote advisors over there at that point. Uh, and this was after Kennedy had been assassinated and Johnson took over as president. In uh, 1964, Johnson was in a presidential election, um, and he was having a, what he perceived to be a lot of pressure from the political right, and Barry Goldwater um, running against him, uh, Goldwater having you know, advocated uh, nuclear weapons in Vietnam if necessarily to get rid of all the communists. And so Johnson was just playing politics here and wanted to look like he was a, a tough guy and wasn't going to wimp out on America's foreign policy. What, uh, uh, just like these, uh, the Bush administration were looking for some reason to hit Iraq and got it with uh, 9-11 and, and everything, I'll talk about that later, uh, Johnson got an opportunity in 64 when uh, American ships were con patrolling in the Gulf of Tonkin on the shore of North Vietnam, and they were spying, um, just collecting information, but they were also supporting South Vietnamese commando raids on various North Vietnamese installations. Uh, this, among other things, was in total disregard of the Geneva Accords, but in any case, um, they one time the, the the USS Maddox was patrolling in uh, one day in '64, and uh, the 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 North Vietnamese just got tired of taking this uh, lying down, and they sent a couple of patrol boats out there, and uh, a little skirmish instigated, both sides firing, and and it was over pretty quick. Well, this had made international headlines, and so President Johnson uh, had to say something about it, and his public persona was, um, you know, this isn't too big a deal. We're not going to worry about it. Um, we'll just let it pass and go on. But privately and secretly, he ordered that the USS Maddox go right back into the Gulf, go right back into the area where it was attacked, and uh, the intention was obvious. He wanted, to, wanted it to be attacked and so that he could have a pretext for, um, for going to, to, to war if necessary, for at least getting war powers. And his staff was drawing up papers even before the Maddox went back in. They were drawing up a resolution for Congress to give Johnson war powers. The Maddox went back in. Uh, 
the captain knew that the North Vietnamese were monitoring him. They were tracking him. He he asked requests several times to uh, to get get out of there, and the, the orders came down on high. No, you are to remain on course. Well, so the tensions and fears were obviously pretty high on the Maddox. Uh, and then at night, there came a storm over the Gulf. Um, the uh, the crew was trying to follow the sonar and radar, but they were acting pretty erratically, and they didn't know how to interpret the blips on the screen, so they just started firing out of panic. They called in air support. The air support said, uh, according to what they were saying, there's nothing down there to shoot at. Uh, the next morning, the military did an investigation, and indeed they didn't find any evidence that there had been enemy uh, ships in, uh, in range, and there had been no attack on the Maddox. But... Uh, Johnson didn't like that answer, so that's not what President Johnson told the world. He, in fact, told uh, the world that the United States had been unprovokedly attacked by the North Vietnamese communists. The Gulf of Tonkin Resolution was drawn up, sent to Congress. The House passed it unanimously, and in the Senate, only two senators voted against it. So Johnson got sweeping war, war powers if he needed them which in the spring of 65, he did that, and he sent the Marines into Da Nang. And so we see then that uh, the plans to uh, get involved in uh, Vietnam uh, were kind of there to begin with, and uh, the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution was uh, the uh, congressional authority, if you will, providing uh, the Johnson administration with uh, the... Uh, justification for intentions they had to begin with. Is that a proper characterization? I think that's pretty close. Um, you could argue also that there, there was still some tentativeness there, that there was no actual committal, but what Johnson wanted, if he needed it, was the power to wage war. Of course, he wanted to beat Barry Goldwater in the election, and so he wanted to appear, at least appear like a hawk. There you go. Okay. Uh, but it definitely, I think, um, it created greater momentum toward what was maybe an inevitability. Which brings us to uh, a parallel of sorts with uh, the Bush administration and uh, Iraq, but we could even uh, back up further, and without getting into too much detail, because we, we still have a lot to cover, but uh, you, you write on, on page 15 of your book that, of course, if we, if we look at uh, a longer history of America's involvement in Iraq, it also began uh, as an anti-communist crusade. Could you just briefly touch upon that? Uh, sure. It, it, it goes in Iraq back to um, at least into the 60s when the Ba'ath regime, which were uh, basically fascists, uh, came to power in coups. And the CIA, uh, the, the only toggles in U.S. foreign policy back then was um, on-off switch for anti-communism. And so whichever um, forces came to power, as long as they were anti-communist, they would support them. And we did that in Iran in 53 when we overthrew the dictator, or excuse me, the, the democratically elected president there and put in a dictator. That was mostly over oil. But... Uh, then in 54, we overthrew the president of uh, Guatemala and put in uh, a regime of military dictators to uh, uphold the interests of the United Fruit Company. But that was all done in the name of anti-communism, too. So that Iraq was just part of the pattern, I think. 
And then we come, uh, I want to remind listeners, we're talking to Kale uh, Balduck, and uh, we are talking about his new book, Is Iraq Another Vietnam? Right now, we're comparing, contrasting uh, pretexts for intervention, if you will, in uh, in both geographic areas. We talked about uh, Vietnam and uh, the uh, anti-communism crusade uh, moving up to the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, which at least... Uh, gave Johnson uh, an opportunity, a political opportunity, whether he he had reservations or not, uh, is a a point well taken. Um, Looking now at Iraq, where, of course, our initial intervention in Iraq, dating back to the the 60s, was also part of uh, an anti-communism agenda, Um, which brings us to uh, the, the now famous Downing Street Memo. Uh, of July 2002. In in what ways, if at all, is this Downing Street memo uh, similar to uh, events surrounding the Gulf of Tonkin? And if you could explain what the Downing Street memo is, though I'm sure most of the listeners of this program are probably by now familiar. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> the Downing Street memo is one of uh, many memos uh, now that have come about uh, that have been leaked out of the uh, British government. And that particular memo uh, showed it was the minutes of meetings between Bush and Blair uh, fairly early on in 2002, uh, more than a year before the war began. And they were basically agreeing that uh, they had to uh, attack Iraq, they had to get rid of Saddam Hussein, and uh, that, you know, intelligence was going to be a problem. I mean, they had British intelligence coming over here and, talking with our CIA people, and, and then they go back and report to, to Blair and, and his folks in the um, government there that, you know, the U.S. intelligence heads are on board here where things are being fixed. We're going to sex this document up. That one we're going to twist around. And uh, that, you know, that occurred in the lead-up to the war, both in uh, Britain and in the United States. Um, so the... What was the the pretext, really? Um, it was all about the, the weapons of mass destruction. That was going to be the, um, the the policy was to um, to invade Iraq. And the uh, evidence was going to be um, doctored to fit around that policy. So, um, And, of course, the Bush administration uh, needed uh, a congressional resolution to uh, allow for an invasion in in Iraq, uh, which he then received with, uh, I don't recall how many senators opposing, but, uh, you know, one is... Not many. Not many. So my my question to to you is, um, in what ways are these pretexts similar? Do you see a parallel between the the, the pretext for... uh, full-scale involvement in Vietnam and the pretext for full-scale involvement uh, in Iraq? I think that the pretexts for Iraq were uh, much more cynical and self-serving on the part of our um, political and economic elite. They wanted to get control of Iraqi oil. They wanted to get Saddam Hussein out of the way because uh, he had been our ally and at the, at the uh, height of his viciousness and butchery he was a perfectly good guy to the uh, political elites. Uh, 
in Washington. Um, you know, good friend of Don Rumsfeld, as a matter of fact, when who went over and met him a couple of times, uh, made some deals with him. But uh, the uh, that when he turned on us and became too independent, then he became a problem. And as we're heading into this um, coming oil crunch and the politics is being so fueled by big oil, all these things just kind of come together to uh, generate a policy that pleases a lot of people from uh, the oil interests to the neoconservatives um, who they have various agendas and some of them will involve uh, even issues like uh, Israel and a greater presence in the uh, U.S. and the Middle East is uh, a bulwark in defense of Israel and in some of these people's thinking. So um, it was much more premeditated, and the goals were set in Iraq, I think. Um, it wasn't just a demonstration of U.S. power, although it certainly is. It, they had specific goals, and uh, obviously the major portion of the planning for after the uh, military conflict was to uh, make a lot of uh, wealthy corporations wealthier with all of this private contracting going, all this huge corporate welfare in the billions going to the Halliburtons and Bechtels and people like that. Sure. So this is, when it gets down to it, this is an experiment in creating an unnecessary war for uh, the profit of uh, relatively few. Uh, we're speaking with uh, Kale. Uh, it's Baldock, correct? Baldock. Baldock. Yeah. And uh, I was wondering if uh, if you could stay with us for the hour to to continue speaking, or do you, do you have to run? No, I'm, I'm glad to stay. Great. Well, then uh, I'd like to just follow up on on one last point. Um, sorry about that. I had to let someone in. I want to follow up on on just one last point. Uh, you write in your book. Uh, uh, actually, you, you quote Noam Chomsky uh, during the Vietnam War, and uh, he writes that the government, he's writing about Vietnam, the government does not really hope to convince anyone by its arguments and claims, but only to sow confusion, relying on the natural tendency to trust authority and to, to avoid complicated and disturbing issues. How can we be sure of the truth? The confused citizen turns to other pursuits. <laughs> And uh, gradually, as government lies, uh, as government lies are reiterated day after day, year after year, falsehood becomes truth. Uh, so the same kind of um, mechanism of creating obfuscation applied both during Vietnam and, and certainly applies today. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, the, the planners of the Vietnam War, uh, they certainly had their public facade and then and they did things completely opposite in the back rooms um, you know they'd say well we're pursuing peace and then they would you know bomb North Vietnam and uh, we're trying to protect the uh, the peasants from the communists uh, when what they were doing and the, the Pentagon papers show pretty clearly that they were attacking the peasants I mean American uh, forces air power artillery were attacking the peasants, and uh, they're using various uh, pretty evil intelligence mechanisms like the Phoenix program to go after people, spread fear, um, and drop napalm on people, burning entire villages down. Um, 
And of course, today we have depleted uranium. You got uh, depleted uranium. Uh, white phosphorus has been used apparently in Iraq. Um, though of course, the military denies it. But when I understand, the Italians made a documentary about it and, and showed that, that they, it was used. And a number of American soldiers have come back from Iraq and testified that it had been used. Well, let's move on to looking at the the problems faced during the war. One of the, the things that I think was so so surprising to so many Americans during Vietnam is uh, how difficult the war was uh, for American troops, for American forces. You've got, you know, the strongest, mightiest, wealthiest nation uh, facing, uh, whether we want to call it a, an insurgency or uh, guerrilla warfare, guerrilla strategy, you've got this this small poor country of vietnam able to uh you know really hold back american uh, american troops now we've got what are being called iraqi insurgents who certainly are causing uh you know you had donald rumsfeld thinking that we have the most technologically advanced army uh military and that we could fight this war uh use overwhelmingly using technology and what we're finding is that th- these strategies of old just don't work anymore. Um, what are some of those similarities, or did I just cover them? Well, the, actually, there's probably um, more differences in, in that statement between the two conflicts. Um, uh, let's see where to start. But um, the, the insurgency in uh, Vietnam, the, the guerrillas there, they were uh, very cohesive. They were all pretty much on the same page. They were well organized and were fighting a, a common enemy. The insurgency in Iraq uh, has just come and gone in fits and starts and changed quite a bit over time. Um, uh, first of all, it was, there were a lot of people just fighting the American invasion of all stripes, Sunnis, Shias, whomever, and then once uh, the, the major fighting was over with and Saddam was gone, uh, if there had been, as uh, you know, General Shinseki, the head of the army, had requested uh, you know, several hundred thousand troops, I saw figures of three to hundred to five hundred thousand troops that were suggested by um, people like Shinseki who had uh, made a career of the military, many of them had action in Vietnam. They went to the U.S. Army War College and studied these things, and uh, they were just completely trampled by this uh, arrogant, incompetent fool, Donald Rumsfeld, uh, who, by the way, I called on him and Wolfowitz to resign in letters to the editor over a year ago. But um, the the ongoing insurgency now is really just a, uh, unlike the Vietnamese, it's, it's totally it's scattered. The insurgents are fighting one another as much as anything. The country's just in, in tatters and, and ruins socially and otherwise in its infrastructure. Uh, and that's m- probably just mostly the, uh, the fault of uh, Rumsfeld and those, the neocons around him who came out of a certain... Uh, philosophy of things that and a lot of this goes back quite a few years to different uh, military strategy and intelligence recommendations. Um, but 
you know, when Rumsfeld gets an idea in his head, I think the man is just so egomaniacal that uh, it's incredible that so much of this uh, ongoing misery on all sides can be laid at, at his feet. And I don't know whether you want me to go into more about any specific thing there. No, I, I think you, you, you touched upon it quite nicely. Uh, I mean, yeah, there there's certainly... Uh, you know, more there was certainly more cohesion in in Vietnam than than there is now. That being said, we're we're stuck in what I think can only be called a quagmire. Um, you've got an interesting take on what should be done now. Uh, what should be done now? And explain yourself if you can. Well, I. I I know that I'm going to find myself at odds with um, most of the anti-war movement, uh, most of the political left on this, but I think that the mistake people make in, uh, one of the mistakes they make in comparing Iraq to Vietnam too closely is uh, that, you know, of course, the situation in Vietnam should have been left alone and should have been tried to be settled through negotiations between the parties there, the Vietnamese, before the United States went in there and just uh, blew the country apart. But, um, uh, and of course, Iraq should not, the war should not have uh, been fought. But the problem in Iraq, I'm afraid, is that uh, whereas the U.S. should have gotten out of Vietnam as quickly, once it did get in as quickly as it, the anti-war movement was calling for then, I, I think we're kind of uh, misreading the situation today if we're calling, especially those for calling for an immediate withdrawal. Now, uh, people are calling for different degrees of withdrawal and under different conditions. And, uh, and I agree that, you know, we've got to get out of there eventually, but uh, especially an immediate withdrawal, I think that as bad as things just keep getting among the various factions there and the threat of civil war happening, uh, there's just too many indications that uh, an already bad situation would become just horrifically worse. And the, the torture and killing and just chaos, uh, fear that's a, a daily reality there would uh, just, you know, multiply many times. Plus, there's a lot of um, a lot of potential for this to spread, I think, to either to the immediate neighbors or um, if al-Qaeda especially gets... Uh, a lot more involved in Iraq as it, as it starts to devolve into chaos. Uh, there are other al-Qaeda factions or just other uh, radical Islamic factions in various uh, surrounding uh, countries in the Middle East there that would likely be uh, invigorated and, and inspired by that and would, you know, just like they've tried to blow up the Saudi, uh, big Saudi refinery recently and They've tried about six times to kill uh, President Musharraf in Pakistan. If either one of those uh, scenarios came to, to be, I mean, the Saudi oil supply went down the tubes, uh, the world economy might just uh, just creak to a halt. And if, uh, if uh, Islamic fundamentalists got a hold of the uh, government of Pakistan, they'd also have their nuclear weapons. And uh, what's India going to do? next door uh, once if a radical fundamentalist regime comes to power in uh, Pakistan or the you know the the whole idea of preemption has been displayed by the United States as something that 
you know, other countries are going to say it's legitimate for us to do it. Uh, and then other commentators have pointed out that this insurgency might turn into a global insurgency. So I think we just have to be at least uh, measured in what we're calling for here and look at the reality on the ground and, and what's going to be best for the people of Iraq and uh, the Middle East in general. So what do you propose? I think that, um, I mean, I, as I said in the book, I called for more international um, participation in this and getting Iraq's neighbors involved in some negotiations. Um, how is that going to happen, though? How is that going to happen? I mean, I don't know but the nuts and bolts of how you run negotiations like that. Um, I mean, how do you convince... Uh, I mean, let me let me begin by agreeing with you that uh, one of the things that, that I've had a problem with, uh, because I am calling for uh, a, a quote-unquote immediate withdrawal, but I don't refer to that as cutting and running or as just, you know, overnight getting every single troop out of there, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and it's, it's largely uh, people from the political right who, who refer to uh, bringing the troops home as cutting and running or the, the you know, immediate 100% complete withdrawal. I mean, that's like, you know, just pulling the rug right out from, from under people. So I would agree with you that it's important, even with people on the left, to, to you know, be sure to properly characterize what they mean. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you give, you give fodder for the other side. Um, that's important because if, if we pull out and a disaster happens, uh, the spin doctors are masterful enough to blame this all on us. Exactly, and I think <laughs> I think you know that's a, a point well taken. Uh, however, I I find it problematic, uh, re- you know, and with all due respect to you, referring to the potential for a civil war. I mean, I think we're about as close to what we could call a civil war as we're we're ever going to get. And more importantly, maybe I'm one of these cynical individuals, but I'm not so sure that it wasn't the intention of the the neocons to spark a civil war to begin with. Um, yeah, I mean, there, I heard uh, uh, interesting take. I read an interesting take by Greg, Greg Palast recently that they said that well, the Bush administration and the oil people got exactly what they wanted in all this chaos because Iraq cannot pump oil, and that keeps. Um, supplies low and the price high. Uh, maybe that's related. I'm, I'm not sure quite what uh, what's the uh, the neocon take on uh, the Civil War. What, but do you, I mean, the numbers, I'm, I'm trying to find them online, um, but certainly the month of March was one of the, the, the deadliest months, both for U.S. troops uh, and, more importantly, or, or as importantly, uh, civilians in Iraq. So the numbers are getting worse. They're not getting better. Mm-hmm. So how does that justify our continued presence as an attempt to uh, bring about stability? Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, and, and I'm not attacking you, because no, I, I understand it's, it's that... question. Exactly. I, I see where you're coming from. I just think that, uh, look, if if you have... Uh, some kind of a um, stability, uh, stabilizing force there in terms of police, uh, military, and whatnot, that's, I think that that's keeping some kind of lid on it. Yeah, it's bad, and it seems to gradually be getting worse, 
And but if you take that away and there becomes a security vacuum, uh, I just see things uh, not getting any better by taking that away. And there, people have got to step up to the plate. I guess is the answer to how we go about getting uh, countries involved and trying to get insurgents involved in negotiations and all. And it may be past the point where we can do that. I think you're right. Things are worse now than they were even last summer when I was writing the book. But I just see that as the most promising way, trying to negotiate, looking toward even a ceasefire and an amnesty. Uh, I've seen a few other people writing about this, calling for similar things, that if that's at all possible, to get uh, people at least talking about a ceasefire and amnesty, but also with um, announcing that, you know, the U.S.'s intention to leave. I think if those can all be done in tandem, then the pressure points would hopefully be taken off of the conflict. The people who are fighting, uh, who are angry because of the occupation presence, would hopefully be somewhat mollified by that. And those with the, the factional sectarian uh, interests would hopefully uh, see some kind of end, a uh, feasible end in sight to what they're angry over. And it's, but you know, you're right in that people just they don't seem to be doing that. You know, they people don't. I think the rest of the world is kind of keeping its distance from this sure. and and letting the U.S. deal with its. It's quagmire. Well, uh, and I've got uh, we've we've we're very rapidly running out of time, right. and I want to give you an opportunity to tell listeners how to get a hold of the book. But I've got two last questions that I hope you could you could answer very shortly. First of all, answer your question: Is Iraq another Vietnam? Well, of course, it's yes and no. No two wars are the same. Uh, we're not in danger of losing tens of thousands of people as it and it goes and we lost nearly 60,000 soldiers, 300,000 were wounded. Um, so in that sense, it's uh, it's not, we're not, uh, I don't think we're slaughtering near as many people over in Iraq as we were in, in Vietnam. Uh, but the potential for uh, the negative fallout of this war is much worse than Vietnam, I think. Okay. And and I think that's a, that's a great answer. And then finally, um, you know, we're here in, uh, or I'm here in Orange County, California, you know, one of the, the hearts of uh, conservative politics. Uh, it might be the state of California, but uh, it's certainly a conservative county. You're in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, could you just tell us uh, briefly, what's it been like to be a critic of the war and a critic of, uh, I'm guessing, but that you're probably also a critic of some of the other policies uh, of the, the current administration. How has that been? Well, it's it's tough to have much of a dialogue with people in uh, in this town with, in terms of opposition to the war. And it's, all, it's, it's changing, I think. People are getting tired of this, and just general public opinion is reflected as much in Kansas City as, as it is overall. Uh, when the majority of people now are, are uh, against uh, staying in Iraq and they think this is wrong, that's reflected in even conservative Midwest. But at the same time, you know, your, your anti-war rallies and all, they might draw a 1,000 people most recently, but there were just 
you know, handfuls of folks out there in the early days, uh, maybe a dozen, uh, very courageously opposing this when you had huge hordes of pro-war people uh, counter-demonstrating, counter too. So, Well, I want to thank you for, for being a critic and for writing this book. And could you tell our listeners uh, how to get a hold of uh, your book? It's titled, Is Iraq Another Vietnam? Well, in uh, Orange County, did you, did you get those books I sent you, Jarrett? I, I have not yet received them. Okay, they should be coming, uh, hopefully. I, I sent some to 2,000-plus books in Long Beach, and I don't know whether they decided to carry them or not. Uh, and uh, if otherwise, you can go to isirakanothervietnam.com. Uh, just don't put the question mark in there, and I've got them for sale online. Great, and uh, hopefully uh, the books will arrive to me and uh, listeners can uh, call in to the program during our fun drive next week, and uh, maybe we will uh, have some of the books available as a premium. So Yeah, please use them as you will. That's great. Great. Well, uh, Kale uh, Bal- Baldock. Right. There you go. Uh, th- this has been great. I'm sure I'll be speaking with you uh, again, and uh, we'll have to have you back on the program. But uh, thank you so much for uh, spending the hour with us this morning for this uh, really important discussion. It's a really great book, a really quick read, and I mean that in the, the best, most positive sense. So thank you so much for being with us this morning. Well, thank you, Jared. I appreciate it. Take care.